That means it's dinner time or it's time to preach. So I'll go with preaching. Good morning and welcome. My name is Toby Gaynor. I'm one of the pastors here, King of Grace Church. And it's a pleasure to worship with you. Good to gather on a Sunday morning. And it is my privilege this morning to lead us in examining and hearing from God through his word. And I trust as he meets with us as I bring uh, this message to us today. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, it will be projected, I believe. Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning, which is where I'll be preaching from. So read along with me as we look at that text together. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. And he says to them, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word to us this morning. I thank you that You have promised to continue to instruct us, to lead us, to transform us by the renewal of your minds. And this morning, we submit ourselves again to your word. And I ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to be continually transformed into more of the likeness of your children, to give glory and honor to you. Help us to hear, help me to speak in ways which are faithful and obedient to you. And may our lives please you, give glory to you through and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you were here a few weeks back, you would have heard me preach uh, a message from Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. And I want to reassure you, because you may be wondering, is my plan to preach through Romans in reverse? Um, No. That would be a little too eccentric, even for this Englishman. Um, But my original... Uh, intention when I was preparing and, le- and preaching from verses 3 to 8 is those verses flow from these two verses and it was hard to pass up an opportunity to preach from them. And it was interesting through the process of preparing for this morning, uh, initially my, I thought I was going to be focusing heavily on the renewal of our minds piece, um, but then as I was preparing, to be honest with you, the mercies of God that we see in, chapter, in verse 1 um, became the primary focus of my attention and of the, the thrust of this passage. And that is going to be what we mainly land on this morning, the mercies of God. Really, these two verses, the opening verses of chapter 12, are pivotal in the whole of Paul's letter to the Romans. He's spent 11 chapters laying out rich theological truths um, of the gospel and the impacts to all, of, all people, um, not just the believers in, in Rome, but Jew and Gentile alike. First 11 chapters, and then in these two verses, he's basically pivoting over to now what the particulars of the Christian life should look like. And because it's such a significant pivot point, we need to understand, well, what is he pivoting on? What is he switching from truth to application, as it were, broad summaries of the book of Romans? And that pivot point is the mercies of God. So it is important that we spend our time to understand that foundation 
that Paul is using to summarize all of 1 to 11 and to lay out the basis for why we do 12 to 16 in Romans. It's on the basis of the mercies of God. Because like any foundation, you get the foundation wrong, everything you build on top of that foundation is wrong. So it's important that we understand the mercies of God. And my main point this morning is that having transformed lives by the mercies of God in Christ, give yourselves fully to him. Having transformed lives by the mercies of God in Christ, give yourselves fully to him. We're going to consider God's mercy in more detail, and then towards the end we'll consider three specific aspects of how that works out in the Christian life, how as Christians we base our lives and live our lives out in the mercies of God. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's letters, the way he writes, um, and he obviously, often he lays out a logical path for us to follow in his arguments. He doesn't always do it. Sometimes he just says, do this as a Christian. In chapter 12, he lays out plenty of these. He says, love your brothers. Don't take vengeance. He just lays them out. But oftentimes, if you're familiar with Paul's writing, he often says, therefore, do this. And he says that there is a therefore in this verse. But that's not enough of a connection in Paul's mind. He could have said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, just to strengthen that link. Everything in verses, in the chapters 1 to 11. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. But he goes one step even further. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, and then goes on to what that should look like. So it is vital that we see the connection of these verses to what goes before and the mercies of God in particular. We need to understand that the context of how Paul uses this phrase, the mercies of God. And there's two things I want us to see. We need to understand the meaning of mercies of God, but it is also important that we understand the effect of the mercies of God. So we're going to look at both of those things first of all. We're going to look at the meaning of the mercies of God and the effect of the mercies of God. Now, just so you know, Paul's not bringing up this term without any reference to anything else. So just a few verses beforehand in chapter 11, uh, we have this to show on the overhead, I think. Paul is speaking to his audience, both Jewish and Gentile believers, and he uses this reference to the mercies of God. I have it up there. I've put in some um, descriptions because he uses lots of pronouns, so it's hard to figure out who he's talking about if you don't know the context. So he says this. He says, For just as you, talking to Gentile believers, were at one time disobedient to God, but had now received mercy because of the Jews' disobedience, so the Jews, too, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, to you Gentile believers, Jewish believers may now also receive mercy mercy. For God has consigned, this is the important kind of capsulating idea, God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So Paul's summary idea, concluding chapter 11, going into chapter 12, is that it does not matter what your background is, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, we could say male or female, young or old, American, English, it does not matter. All of us have been consigned to disobedience. Disobedience to our sovereign creator. 
and the mercies of God is Paul's summary of God's activity and God's attitude toward man in and through the gospel because of our disobedience. And it's what we can read all through the book of Romans. And I encourage you, if you haven't read through Romans in one sitting recently, in the last year or so, then I'll give you some homework. Go at some point this week, try and read through the book of Romans. doesn't matter if you don't understand everything in there. You'll get the flavor of the gospel. But I'm going to summarize what Paul is talking about to lead us to this point of the mercies of God. In Romans chapter 1, he lays out how all mankind is disobedient to God. And in doing so, God has given us up to our debased mind and the lusts of our hearts and our flesh to do things that we ought not do. But God doesn't leave us there. He says in chapter 2 of Romans that God is patient with these people, with us. His patience is intended to lead us to repentance. But it also says that God is not eternally patient. He has defined a point when God's patience will transition into just judgment. God is the creator of the world and he is our just judge. And left to ourselves, we can only expect God's devastating wrath that has been stored up and is being stored up against sin and disobedience. But the good news is that there are more chapters in Romans and we are not left to ourselves. Romans chapter 3, verse 22, says that there is now available to us a righteousness that is revealed through faith to all who believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself told a story to help us understand the scale and magnitude of God's mercy. It's one of my favorite stories that Jesus tells. It's in Matthew Chapter 8, starts in verse 23. Again, more homework. Go read that later on. Matthew chapter 18. It's a story that he tells about a servant, a servant who works for a king, and somehow this servant has racked up this massive, massive debt, a debt that would take multiple lifetimes to pay off. And honestly, the, the servant has absolutely no chance of being able to repay it. And the king is in a position of either holding the servant to repaying the debt or to forgive the debt. The servant is totally dependent upon the king's decision, either to hold him accountable for the debt or to forgive it. And in the stories, you may know, the story is that the king forgives the servant his debt. Now, there's other aspects of that story, which is not the point I'm trying to make, but go read that to just to see and again receive a, a clear message, a, stump, a story about God's mercy. But when that king forgives and excuses that debt, where does it go? It doesn't just vanish. It doesn't disappear. The king essentially assumes payment for that debt himself. The king has to pay off that debt comes out of his own pocket. And the same way, for God to offer mercy to sinners, his wrath against sin doesn't just vanish, doesn't disappear. God says, I forgive it. Okay, that's gone. God takes the debt upon himself. 
And he did so in and through his son, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. For God to be able to express complete mercy upon sinners, his wrath must be completely poured out and paid for in upon Jesus. And as sinners, we are all completely dependent upon God's decision, either to hold us accountable or to forgive us. One of the best verses, it's hard to say that there are best verses in the Bible, but this is a great one. Romans 8, 1, after having shown and explained to us how it is that we can have forgiveness and have our debt paid for through faith in Christ, Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation. Does everyone hear that? Hold on a second. All right, I don't know what I'm doing with this. Mr. Parisi or Mr. Jacoby. Just uh, just ignore the noise and the uh, people behind us. This is all part of the professional program we put on. That's quite okay. Thank you. I will. <laughs> I will start from, just back the tape up to Romans 8.1. We'll splice that out. It'll look great on video. Okay, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm relieved that that noise is gone, but we should be more relieved by the verse and truth in Romans 8.1. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's you and I, brothers and sisters. When we place our faith in Christ, there is now no condemnation. God chooses to bless us with mercy rather than pour out upon us judgment and wrath. And Paul chooses this phrase to summarize the gospel as the mercies of God. And he could have chosen other things in chapter one, verse 1 of chapter 12. He could have said, in, I appeal to you in light of the love of God. Or, I appeal to you, brothers, because of the gospel. Those would have been fine. They could have used other words, but he chose to say the mercies of God. And so I think it's worth us still just laboring just a little bit longer to make sure that we again understand and press home that we understand what mercy means. And the reason I do that is I know that I struggle with mercy, and I'm sure you do too, largely because of my temptation, my tendency towards Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is my evaluation of myself that means I say, well, I've got something of value that I can offer up to God. And as soon as I do that, it reduces my dependency upon mercy. I'll take some mercy, but I'll also offer you something else. Something of value. I heard an illustration once, which I will share with you, that I think helps reveal or probe just how well we grasp the mercies of God in Christ. It is a little dramatic in, mo in parts, but I think it serves to show the seriousness and importance that we grasp this subject. So, think with me for a moment. Picture the scene. You're back home, one evening perhaps relaxing. You're by yourself. Everyone's out of the house. It's quiet. Maybe you're unwinding down. You're listening to some music. 
you're chilling out, and you're so chill, actually, that you don't hear the sound of breaking glass somewhere else in the house. And the next thing you know is you get a blow to the head, and you black out. You come to sometime later, and you find yourself bound to a chair, and there are masked intruders around you, each of them wielding weapons of some sort or another. You try to reason with them. You try to offer them anything. Take whatever you want. Just leave me alone. But it doesn't seem to matter what you say, what you offer. They seem to be intent on harming you. And you're pretty sure even killing you. At some point, when you realize that nothing is going to change them, you cannot persuade them. You might say something like, please, have mercy on me. That, that would be an appropriate and reasonable thing to say. Have mercy on me. All that you have left to appeal to is the intruder's sense of compassion and mercy, hoping that there is some measure of that within them, that they may change their plans against you based on mercy alone. But even in that situation... In the truest sense, you are not entirely dependent upon mercy. Because I'm thinking, particularly some of the guys, you heroes out there, you're thinking to yourself, or any opportunity I see to get myself out, I'm taking it. And I'm taking them all down. I think there's a few of you out there. You think there is some form of self-effort that will get you out of this situation. You just got to wait for the right window. And whether that's, not you, whether that's you or not, I'm, I'm sure that we've all still got somewhere in the back of our mind a very strong sense of justice that's still very active. If the police were to swoop in at that very moment, my dependence or apparent dependence on mercy would quickly switch to be dependent on justice. I would rather have justice executed in that moment than mercy. My the reliance on a higher power for justice would trump my dependence upon mercy from these people. And I share that illustration because it can probe and expose how we sometimes misunderstand the mercies of God. Because if we're honest with ourselves, do we sometimes see God's mercy in that light? We may very well confess that we need it, but any and every opportunity that we have to rely on self-effort, to boast of self-righteousness, we take it. Oh, I had a great quiet time this week. I served in church on Sunday. That guy that cut me off in traffic, didn't say a thing. I'm going to be pretty good with God for a day, week, so God's going to be pretty pleased with me. Whenever we rely on self-righteousness for our standing before God, we reveal that we're keeping in the back of our minds that small measure of trust that there is some higher power out there that justice is going to work out better for me than mercy. That I can appeal to some authority that's going to say, yeah, sure, give him some mercy, but hey, look at all these other things. There's some justice that this guy works out well for. I say to that I'm not really as bad as God says that I am. 
And yet to understand Paul's appeal for mercy, the mercies of God, to understand the gospel, we need to understand that the scale of our desperate state, that if we cling to self-righteousness before God, we are clinging to nothing. We are clinging to nothing. There is no higher authority of justice in this universe over God. There is no self-rescue under His judgment. There is no court of appeal to overrule God's verdict on you and I that we are guilty. That we have sought to be self-sufficient with the very life He gave us. And that our rebellion is deserving of death and eternal judgment and separation from Him. If you and I are content to build on a foundation that is tainted and scattered through with self-righteousness, then what we build will be weak and will totter. And it will not be the kind of life, the Christian life, that God intends us to build that is squarely based and founded on His mercies alone. But when we do grow and fully embrace our terrible and desperate state before God, when we repent of our sins and repent of our self-righteousness, our clinging to our own value to prove our worth to God and trust only in the righteousness that we have in Christ, the treasure of the gospel becomes all that we hold to. The mercies of God become sweet and precious as we hold to those alone for how I'm going to evade the judgment of God and receive forgiveness and new life. Maybe you've never received God's mercy before. Maybe you've never really heard about it or had it presented that you even need God's mercy. Maybe you've heard it before, but you've recognized that you've been clinging to pieces of Self-righteousness where you're really holding out for justice to work in your favor. Oh, brothers and sisters, is my opportunity to tell you that God's mercy is fresh this morning. God is merciful toward you today. Some great verses, Lamentations 3, 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I can tell you that in preparing for this message this morning, God brought a fresh sense of my own self-righteousness in different ways, and I repented and found God's mercy fresh and sweet. So I've already sampled. It's fresh again this morning. And if that's you that needs that again, I encourage you, I implore you, come before God, don't think that there is anything stopping you to come to Him on the basis of mercy. And God will show you fresh mercy this morning in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. So that's the understanding of what the mercies of God, God Paul is talking about. There's one more thing we need to understand before we go on to what he's going to tell us. That means we then, how our Christian lives should look. We need to understand the meaning, but we also need to understand what Paul has been teaching on the effect of the mercies of God for Christians. To correctly understand Paul's appeal for them, to the mercies of God, we need to understand 
that Paul's talking about, a mercy of God which brings about life-transforming change in a believer. That we as Christians have been brought from death to life. Now it is very, very important that we get this point before we move on. Because if we quick, too quickly assume that we understand what God's mercy means, we might think that what follows is merely an expression of gratitude. We might think that what follows from these, this first verse is merely an expression of gratitude. Now certainly, gratitude for mercy is an appropriate response. But there is a problem if gratitude alone is our chief motivator. Why is it a problem? Well, what if you don't feel grateful? Are you meant to pretend? Act like you are? Are you meant to wait? Wait until you feel grateful and then act in the right way. I don't know about you, but I wrestle and sometimes struggle with, with those sorts of thoughts. So if gratitude is my behavior or my, my motivation. What do I then do and I don't feel grateful? Well, thankfully, I don't think actually that is Paul's main point here. Yes, gratitude is present, but Paul has in his mind, has been teaching through Romans again, that there is something far more fundamental, far more true, consistently true, which is our motivation for how we live the Christian life. Chief in Paul's mind is not gratitude for the mercies of God, but transformation by the mercies of God. Transformation in being dead toward God, being capable of living for him or living with him, and being brought into new life, a life that lives and breathes and now has some direction and purpose and lives as it is directed toward God. We see this in chapter 6 of Romans. Again, I have those verses up for us to read. But a few verses that help us see this clearly. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present... Notice that word. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do you notice the same language there between chapter 6 and chapter 12 of presenting ourselves to God? Paul's argument is that you have been brought from death to life, so present yourself to God. We have received the mercies of God, so present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To give ourselves fully to God is an appropriate expression of gratitude, yes, for the mercies of God, but giving ourselves fully to God is an appropriate expression of a theological reality that is true for anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. That, that you, Whether you feel grateful or not, if you are a Christian, you are alive to God. What are you going to do with that life? Paul's argument is you're alive to God, so use your life this way. Don't wait to feel grateful. Understand that you have something has happened in you if you are a Christian. You were dead to God, and now you have new life. 
Therefore, this is how you should live that life, in light of the mercies of God. Actually, it's reinforced by the words at the end of verse 1. The ESV says, um, this is your, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, maybe if, you're, if you've got an ESV in front of you, you'll notice there's a little footnote there, which says at the bottom of the page, your rational service. And other translations put something similar. This is your proper uh, response, proper service. I think it's reinforcing that idea. To give ourselves as a living sacrifice to God is simply the realistic, the proper expression of now having a new life in God, with God, a new life before him in Christ. God gave you this life, so use your life in service to God. In some in ways, Paul's just thinking a very logical expression of the reality of new life in Christ. And we are to be a living sacrifice. Living, again, is just this idea of being transformed. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer, you are not in no way tied and connected to your life before you were a Christian. The old has gone. The life of death is behind you. The life that you have in Christ Jesus is before you. And you can live that in sacrifice to God. What does that sacrifice piece mean? Well, it's not an atoning sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice to do away with sins. That is the one sacrifice that Jesus Christ has done and taken care of, the one we were talking about. But living a life of sacrifice to God means a life of giving up what was previously valued in order for the, for the sake of obtaining something or someone who is more valued. Sacrifice is giving up something that was valued to obtain someone more valued. Again, Luke 9, 23 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily we are called to die to ourselves, die to the old passions that we used to live for, knowing that to do so we obtain Christ far greater, far more treasured than anything we hold to in this world. So, the mercies of God are the foundation of Paul's comments that we're going to look at now in the rest of these two verses. So having had lives transformed by the mercies of God in Christ, we're to give ourselves fully to him. And we're going to look at three specific aspects of what that looks like. For the Christian life lived out under the mercies of God. So having been transformed by, having transformed lives by the mercies of God in Christ, Paul says, give your body fully to him. Give your mind fully to him. And give your heart fully to him. Giving of ourselves fully to God consists of those three elements according to verses 1 and 2. So let's look at those each in turn. Having had transformed lives by the mercies of God in Christ, give your bodies fully to him. It's right there in verse 1, present your bodies. There is a physicality to the Christian life. True Christian religion cannot be reduced merely to some form of thinking or some form of spirituality, a spiritual viewpoint on life alone. And sometimes I think we get a little bit confused there. We can sometimes drift into wrong thinking. And sometimes scriptures actually, if we take them out of context, 
cause us to stumble and trip up. I'll give you an example. Romans 8 verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So if I was to just take that verse, then surely, okay, flesh is bad, forget flesh, spirit good, live for spirit. So I'm going to retreat off to a monastery and I'm going to have these spiritual thoughts. And that's what God's calling me to. Sorry if I'm oversimplifying it. But I don't know if you've wrestled with those sorts of ideas. How do we wrestle with the, the, reality, the physical realities of our life? Well, again, that's why we need all of Scripture to inform us. And, and this verse in, in chapter 12, verse 1, giving our bodies to God is a helpful reminder that God is not against physical world. In fact, to follow up on the verse I just read in Romans 8, Paul continues that train of thought in verse 11. He says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit of God brought Jesus to a new physical life. And he does the same to all of those who are united with him through faith. So we should not despise the physical world. We should give our physical bodies fully to him, which means serving him with deed and action. In everything we do, we can do it in God's service. It means that God is pleased to accept you drying the dishes at the end of dinner for his service. It means God is pleased when you go out of your way to pick someone up to bring them to church for his service. He's pleased when you make that faithful to commute to work for eight hours in the office or on the shop floor for his service. God is pleased when you go to India on a missions trip or when you support people to go to India on a missions trip for his service. What does giving your body fully to God look like for you? How will you use your physical body and energy for God's work and God's purposes? It doesn't have to be different from what you may presently be doing, but you recognize that God is interested in how you use your bodies. As an aside, it's not really the main point here, but let me just say something about body image. God's criteria for accepting your bodily worship is in no way based on image. It is a lie of Satan that your value to God or to man is tied up in image. And hopefully, I hope you see here, that the mercies of God blows that lie out of the water. God knows and receives you through Christ, through faith, through his death and resurrection. And he breathes new life into you by his spirit, into your existing body here, now, today, right as you are even as we wait for a glorious and eternal body to come as we live with him forever. So if body image is something that you struggle with, and I know many do, and we'll talk more about media in just a minute, but if that's something you struggle with, I hope you hear in these, body, in these words that you can present your body to God now, and God is pleased to accept you in and through Jesus Christ. He is not waiting for you to change or waiting for you to reach some sort of um, perfect image. I hope that helps you. But it also leads us back into our passage, because that is a lie that is, is uh, strong in how we conform to the world, and that's the caution 
and the command that Paul gives us in verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Although we live bodily in this world, we need to hear and we need to be reminded that we are not to conform to this world. Literally, that word is more like this age. Again, if you go back to Romans chapter 1, we understand this world, this age, is opposed to God. It refuses to glorify Him and to obey Him. So the fact that you have new life in Him, why would you conform to that mindset? And actually, as Mike read in, in Psalm 103, the other reminder is that this age is fleeting. It's passing away. It's like a flower that's here today and tomorrow is dried up and gone. Why live for something that is opposed to God with a new life that you've been given from God? And why live for something that is fleeting and passing away when we have the opportunity to here and now start living for a life that is eternal? Living our life in conformity to that which is glorious and will last forever. We can give ourselves fully to a new way of life that pleases God and glorifies Him. So having transformed lives by the mercy of God in Christ, we live, give our bodies fully to him. We also to give our mind fully to him. As he says in there, we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. What does that mean? If the mercies of God have already transformed us from death to life, what's Paul talking about here? Another transformation? How many transformations are we meant to go through? Do I get transformed again and again and again? Well, yes and no. The transformation that Paul's talking about here is really to bring ourselves through the renewal of our minds into conformity with the transformed life we already have in Christ. The theological term for that is, is just sanctification, a word you may have heard before. It's just a conforming, a growing conforming of our life into the reality that we are new creatures, new children under God's grace. Now, it's not our work alone. We don't do this simply by ourselves, think, simply by thinking hard. It is interesting this t word that Paul uses, being transformed, he uses again elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I think we have that verse to show. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the image of into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It is God's Holy Spirit who works with us and in us and through us to continue that work of transformation that God has already accomplished through giving us new life. But we must bring our brains, our minds, into conformity. So, and, that, and again, as that verse shows us, it is in beholding the Lord and His glory. Ultimately, we see that in the Gospel, but this book is all Gospel. From the first page to the last, this book is all Gospel. It needs to be understood and interpreted that way. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, He explained to His disciples, you want to know about Me? Well, let me go back to the Old Testament and I'll show you all the things that point to Me. So it doesn't matter where you are in, the bo in this book. It shows and points us the glory of God in Christ. And it's there that we see the glory of Christ and that we are transformed through the renewing of our minds. Now this 
understanding that we need to be filling our minds with something to help us conform into this image helps and protects us against two errors that I think sometimes that are out there and we sometimes stumble over. There's a first error is a form of pragmatism in the church, perhaps. You know, I, I live out my Christian life from what I do. I'm not much of a reader or a thinker. In fact, I find that kind of slows me down and confuses me. I find the books are a bit disconnected from reality. I'm a doer. You give me something to do, and I'll do it. The problem is, is even if you don't like thinking, you're still thinking about thinking somehow. You're working out activities. You're thinking about what you're doing. Your thoughts about not liking books and reading, that's thinking. You and I, we're not self-sufficient. We can't generate the right thinking by ourselves. You need to fuel it with something. You need to fuel it with God's Word and God's truth, either directly from His Word or from faithful teachers who have been good to keep their Word written down for us to read and digest. And then deliberate reflection upon those truths, trusting that God's Spirit will work transformation in us. So pragmatism says, well, I'll show you my faith in doing. Paul says, well, yeah, go do, but make sure that you're fueled with the right thoughts and thinking that makes that doing a life that is demonstrating a transformed life. The second error is a kind of emotionalism. Same sort of thing. I don't like thinking with my head. That's dry and dusty. I feel with my heart. I'm a passionate kind of person. And I think that kind of caution or that, that impetus comes from a good, good place. No one wants dry intellectualism with no feeling at all. But I think it's a false contrast. Paul is not offering to us either or, head or heart. But he says both and. Fill your head so that your heart is fueled. Because again, our hearts, without the right fuel of God's truth, are very prone to mislead and to steer us in all sorts of errors. I came across this quotation from B.B. Warfield, who was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary in the late 19th, early 20th century. And I love what he said. He said, Sometimes we hear, I, I don't know what he sounded like, but I feel like he has to have a stern kind of voice. Sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. What is the appropriate response? Than 10 hours over your books on your knees? Now he was addressing theological students and seminary students, and most of us don't have 10 hours to pour over our books. But the point he's making is you need to be fueled by truth and you need the Spirit to take that truth and stir it up and bring about the right change in our hearts. So let's read and pray. Let's think and feel and make sure that we do both in a way which honors God. So we may not have 10 hours. I doubt many of us have 10 hours, unless you're a, a seminary student maybe, to, to pour over books. But what about one hour? What about 10 minutes? What time do you give to feed your mind from God's book or from other faithful teachers of God's word? How do you expect to resist conforming to this world if you don't take anything from God's world to counteract the world's influence? 
We live in a tremendously media-saturated culture. And it is so easy for any one of us to just be filled up with the influence of media. Some of you might be right now surfing the net, watching YouTube. If I, got, if I bored you already, you might be on your phone. I don't know. I hope not. I trust no one. But you could leave here and immediately spend the rest of the afternoon absorbing the world's influence through media. And there is a tremendous irony when we do that. I've been there. I get home from a long day at work, dog tired. I do not feel like I've got the energy to read or to think. But what I feel like doing is sitting in front of the television. And I feel like that will kind of at least bring a little bit of life back to me. The irony of that is that simply relaxing in front of the television, taking in the world's influence with no input from a, of a mind of God, simply works to conform me to this age which is dead and passing away. There is nothing that is life-giving from the world. On, in contrast, taking in God's truth is life-giving as I find myself renewed and transformed in the new life that he has given me and as I feed myself on his word. So that which seems difficult feeds my soul. That which seems easy kills my soul unless I bring to it a God-informed mindset. Now, there is nothing wrong. Don't you hear what I'm saying here? I'm not saying you can't go watch television. I still plan on going watch, watching television from once in a while. Nothing wrong with looking at YouTube once in a while. Carefully. But bring to those activities a renewed mind in God's ways, renewed by God's word, so that you can assess those things and enjoy them the way that God intends you to and gives honor to him. Kelly and I, a, long, a while ago, a long time ago, developed a practice that when we'd sit down to watch a movie, we would pray together. Pray that God would help us view what we were going to receive to be able to discern truth and discern falsehood. And I can't tell you how many times that that led to very provoking conversations at the end of, the, end of watching a movie of how we saw elements of, of truth and elements of falsehood. And it just made we were on guard and informed to receive it. Now, before you ask my kids, we don't do this all the time, but it has become a practice that which we try to do regularly. It's just a way to help us try to, to take in the world's effect and influence in a way which is informed by a transformed mind. So having transformed our minds by the mercies of God in Christ, we give our minds to him, and lastly, we give our heart fully to him. Now, it's okay to be thinking at this point, now hold on a minute, Pastor, where did you get that from the passage? I can see body very clearly in verse 1. I see mind very clearly, but heart is not in this passage. You just added that in because you like to make three points. You should always ask, where did it come from from the text? And if you don't hear the answer eventually, you can come up to any one of the pastors afterwards and say, Pastor, help me understand where that came from in the text. But I can assure you, and I trust I will show you, that it is there. That we have to give our hearts fully to God. It's in the second half of verse 2, where Paul says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, we're all familiar, I think, with beings that take the right information into their heads and translates that into right action in their bodies. 
takes right information into their minds and translates that into right action in their bodies. And, they are, and that's all they do. And they're called robots. They take right information and they transfer it into right action. They're robots. That's what they're programmed to do. And hopefully, you don't need much convincing from me that God isn't looking for faithful robots. That doesn't sound like the glorious new life that Jesus Christ was given and risen into, and it doesn't sound like the glorious new life that God offers to his children. Our verses don't end only with giving our bodies and our minds to God. Paul goes on to say that our transformed bodies and our renewed minds will be able to test and discern God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. That is, that by living out the new life according to God's ways, we will, and by thinking according to the new life, according to Psalm 34, we will taste and see that the Lord is good. Through the renewal of our minds and from our service to God with our bodies, we will test and discern and taste and see the goodness of God's ways, how acceptable they are to our souls, how perfect they are. And we should declare, I love God's ways. I love them. They're perfect. And because God's will flows from who he is, loving God's ways cannot be separated from loving God. They go together, God and his ways. And so our hearts, we press into doing what God wants us to do. We think what God wants us to think, and our hearts say, yes, that's what I was created for. Let me, let me briefly clarify, though, what Paul is saying and what he means by will of God. Sometimes that phrase causes us some uncertainty. Uh, we trip up a little bit because we think, most often we go to thinking of it in terms of very specific things, specific situations in my, in my life. What's God's will for, you know, what job should I take? You know, what vacation should I go on? Which person should I marry? Those sorts of specific outworkings of the God's will. But in this context, I don't, that's not what Paul's um, trying to, the point he's trying to make. Rather, Paul is about to lay out for the Roman Christians in this chapter onwards exactly what God's will looks like in various areas and applications of life. So, from, for example, in verses 3 to 8, we see God's will and the use of spiritual gifts. In verses 9 to 13, we see God's will in loving other Christians, in being patient in tribulation, in praying, in opening our wallets and our homes to God and to serve others. In verses 14 to 21, God's will in loving our enemies and not showing vengeance against them. In chapter 13 onwards, God's will for our submission to authorities and so on and so on. All of God's ways are perfect and good and acceptable. And it's not that God's ways are good and acceptable and perfect to him, and it's really your preference whether you agree with him or not. They're not like flavors of ice cream where we can differ or have different opinions as to which one's the best. Because God is God, his nature defines objective goodness for all of us. His nature defines objective acceptability for all of us. His nature defines objective perfection for all of us. Sometimes we see that straight off, and other times it can take a while for us to get there. Some of us, I'm sure, we will have to wrestle in our minds with prayer, much prayer and much reflection and much counsel before we have peace over what we know God is calling us to. 
Maybe it's for you as it's as you wrestle through what it means, the complementary roles of men and women as presented in God's Word. For me, it was, it was baptism. As I came to God's Word, and I came from a paedo-baptist background and upbringing, as I was wrestling with the idea of believer's baptism, it was a wrestle for me. It wasn't something I immediately grabbed hold of, but it was a sweet wrestle. And God led me to a point of understanding, of, of, of peace about what I felt His Word was teaching. So it may be a wrestle in your minds. It may be a wrestle in how you live your, with your bodies, of walking out a faith that takes a tremendous amount of, of faith and courage. Maybe it's faith in how you faithfully and regularly tithe for your church. Maybe it's faith in how you walk out sexual purity in your relationships. Or even how you approach tendencies and temptations to homosexuality. But God's ways are good and acceptable and perfect. That is an objective reality. And we can walk out in faith to embrace them and ask God to help us to taste and to see and confess with our hearts, yes, yes, yes. Amen. This is good. His ways are good. If I can ask the band to come up. The mercies of God are the foundation of the Christian life. And they are what every expression of our Christian life is built upon. Every time you serve God with your body, you do so on the foundation of the mercy of God in Christ's perfect body, broken for you. Every time your mind is renewed in the knowledge of God and His ways, you do so on the foundation of the mercies of God in Christ, willingly knowing sin and God's punishment for you and I. Every time your heart discerns and declares, I love God and I love His ways, you do so on the foundation of God's mercies in Christ who gave up the delights of heaven and the delights of life itself so that you and I could know new life. But those truths shouldn't dampen our joy in giving ourselves fully to God, but rather our praise, our affections, our humbleness to serve God should be kindled should be stirred, the more we recognize that everything about our new lives in Christ is flavored with God's mercy in Christ. So brothers and sisters, having transformed lives by the mercy of God, let us give ourselves fully to Him. Let me pray.